I was thinking about what I said yesterday about the last 15 years not being so much a lack of good art, good music, good ideas, but more a lack of like movements surrounding those. Like you don't see as many groups of people. It doesn't seem like you see as many organic scenes or whatever you want to call them, just groups. And this is a real old guy take, but it, it did just cross my mind where I was like, you know, when you look at like the early, you look at like Tampa death metal, Florida death metal, where there was just a, a very significant group of bands that came from Florida and played similar music. They all basically became classics of the genre. But like how many of those bands would have existed if they had an Xbox? <laughs> How many of those bands would have existed if they had a, a, a Xbox? No, I'm serious though. Like, I, you do have to wonder about that because it's like, it's kind of like that old guy take. That's like, when we were kids, we used to spend all of our time outside, and we would have to come up with ideas in our imagination. We would have to make our own fun, you know. Because that's even though that is a classic old guy take, can you really argue with it? You know, can you really argue with the idea? Like when I look back at my childhood, like what I remember more than anything are those sorts of little adventures just in the neighborhood, like doing, playing what we called playing guns, where you just go around and pretend to be like a squad of guys with guns. But uh, that is that old guy take. But then, you know, it's the same when you look at like art and music and stuff and you go like, huh, you know, is the reason we're not seeing that? Like, because kids are playing Xbox. They're and not just that, but they're distracted by all kinds of other things. And that does feel like a really normal it's that's like one of those takes that's almost like so obvious i feel like i missed it where it's like oh yeah of course we're not seeing not only are we i feel like we see not only do i feel like we're seeing less like truly significant individuals but it's like i don't think anyone can argue that there's a lack of these movements in all of this and that's because you're lucky if you can get like one kid together who's committed you know and it's and i think one of those things too is like in the old days, like I was talking about this with the Misfits, but it was always surprising to kind of find out that some of the band members, even though they seem amazing and cool to you, and it seems like they'd all be on the same page, like sometimes you'd find out that one of these key band members in an old band, like really didn't know anything about the music he was playing, like really kind of an outsider to the genre, but he was some local guy they knew. You know, I was talking about how that came up in the Misfits and Samhain. And I feel like that's true with a lot of metal bands where it was just like, oh, this was a guy who they knew from their town, who went to their school, who could play bass. And they convinced him to look a certain way and like probably gave him tapes to listen to. But it's still one of those things where these these these, these guys weren't all all-stars. Because I think we have a tendency to look back at bands in particular, especially with their classic lineup and be like, because we only know them to be classic or only know them to be really good. We got into them later, maybe like we have a tendency to look at their classic lineup and be like, oh, they were already a super group. Like you look at Slayer and it's like, oh, yeah, Slayer was a super group. But no, they were they were Slayer. They were a group of guys who got together organically. And they, but Slayer themselves seem like a super group because like we know the names of every single guy in the band and they're all legendary. Uh, but it's always fun to me, like when you find out that somebody in the band was just a dude. Just a guy. They just got a guy to play bass. There's <laughs> it's even better when it's somebody who was really important who like wrote songs and all that, but 
Yeah, I just thought of that. I was like, oh yeah, it's Xbox. The reason the, the reason there's not like groups of innovative bands forming their own scenes is because uh, they're all playing the Xbox, among other things. But uh, you know, I do wonder though, because I was I was talking about how it seems like there has been this stagnation that other things have taken precedent over music and art, or at least as I understand it. Because I have seen people make the argument that like what we've seen online and digital culture over the last 10 years is some kind of, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I'm getting into weeds I don't want to get into by talking about art. But I have heard people make the argument that like all of this digital ephemera is the relevant art of the last 10 years. And not just electronic music, things like that, but even just... I mean, I've seen people say that about memes and things that that's tough for me, you know, because I, I understand it. Like I, I want to give that argument. I want to give that argument its due because I actually think it's true in, in some way. Like I've never posted memes. I'm not a meme guy. I've, I see some that make me laugh and everything, you know, but, uh, you know, just the last sentence is probably the most number of times I've ever said the word meme on this show. I would bet that's a fact. I, I feel like I've probably only said it once before I avoid it. Um, not for any real reason. I don't even know. It's like, it's like one of those things that when they were introduced, I didn't like the idea of them. I didn't like the very first ones that I saw. The ones that were deliberately meant to be memes. Because I know people have said that, you know, tons of stuff, like pre-internet even, like memes are an idea much larger than just these digital images from the last 20 years. But I know when I first started seeing memes that were meant to be memes, that were like, they were self-aware of what they were. I just, I didn't even like hate it. I was just like, that's not the thing for me. That's not what I need to be looking at. And I, and I just, you know, I didn't. I, I I don't know. I just wasn't what I needed to be looking at. And other people got really ironic because, you know, it's, it's this very ironic format where like even cool people can get into memes because it and like, and, you know, make them and share them because I don't know, it's, it's, it's just, it's very clowny and, and stuff. And that's cool. You know, I'm glad people can do that. I'm glad people can do, you know, it's, it's like a form of that uh, bathos. If you're familiar with that term bathos. I don't know that I can properly explain it, but just, it's like, well, it's, it's juxtaposition and it's contrast. So that's, it's basically what it is. It's, it's like it, if you're watching a production or a, a movie and there's, or a show and there's a very serious scene, it's very dark and somber and then it cuts or, or it goes into something that's goofy. You know, let's say it's talking about something very solemn and serious you know, that people would never joke about. It'll go from that. It'll go from a very serious tone into something just over the top and goofy, even slapstick or gross or, you know, uh, I've seen that referred to as bathos. And that, that's kind of what I'm talking about here. Um, what am I talking about though? Uh, how, jeez, uh, I feel like somebody just asked me like, can you tell me like, I'm having a conversation with someone and they say to me, um, what did I just say to you? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> when they realize you're not listening, I just, I just did that to myself. But anyway, bathos, yeah, it's, it's kind of this contrast. It's kind of like this shift, this like really drastic shift in moods. 
me, I was talking about memes. And so it's like, like when somebody who's otherwise like very serious, like, cause I'll see people who are like artists, like dark artists and people like that, musicians, I'll see where like they'll get into memes as part of their public persona. Like they'll share memes on their online accounts and things like that. Like people who like otherwise would never, never present themselves that way. And uh, like, I kind of get what that's almost like that bathos thing where it's like, look at this. This is like the, the dumbest, silliest thing you could possibly show to people. But see, you know, it's, it's, it's a form of that bathos, which is a really pretentious way to describe what I just was talking about. But I've been thinking about that term. I saw that term earlier and I, I just thought about it because I was like, oh, yeah, I, I never realized that I've never heard that. Or if I've heard it, I didn't know what it meant. Bathos. I don't know what the word is derived from. I don't know what it means or refers to, but it, yeah, it does refer to that sort of juxtaposition. And cartoons do that. You know, cartoons make use of that. The jump cut is a version of that, especially if it jumps to something that's the complete opposite. And I mean, I think you could even say, like, if you watch, like, I, like on the first episode of The Sopranos, the pilot episode, there's the scene where Tony and Christopher are beating a guy up very badly. They hit him with their car and they're beating him up very badly. And it's playing like this very happy doo-wop song. It's like that kind of juxtaposition too. I don't know if bathos includes like two feelings in the same moment like that. Or if it just refers to like a transition from one to the other. Same, you know, a Bronx Tale, just thinking of mob movies. You know, a Bronx Tale, there's the scene, like the big fight scene with the bikers and the mob guys. And these guys are getting brutally beaten. And it's playing the, the doo-wop song, Ten Commandment of Love. So you can see like two mob, um, a mob movie and a mob show, like both use doo-wop over a, like a bad beating to kind of like make it almost slapsticky. It's almost like Benny Hill or something, but it's violent. And it is serious. So there's that too, like when those two things overlap. And I like that. I think if you don't do that too much, that is a really strong effect. Like in movies, I've always thought that that is a very powerful effect. But at some point, people realized you could do that all the time. I don't know if Tarantino did that. I haven't seen any Quentin Tarantino movies since I was very young. God, it's probably been, you know, I was probably a kid. But uh, I feel like his movies might have done that. You know, because like it, it can be very a good effect to have like that kind of contrast in the moment. So anyway, that's why people that's why people who are otherwise like super dark and serious who are who get into memes, it's like they're uh, they're doing the same thing. <laughs> probably I've probably thought more about this than anybody needs to or should. But uh, you know, I have seen going back to what I'm talking about, like I have seen where people have made the argument that memes and just the whole culture, like these, these bizarre internet subcultures that have formed. Cause you know, that was the thing that, you know, there, yeah, there were some like nerds who had their own way of saying things when I first got on the internet. But I mean, we're now looking at like, you know, 20, 25 years of the internet, like accumulating its own weird lexicon and subcultures and changes and it's so strange, like, you, you know, most of the things that you read online, like, especially the weird jokes and, you know, language games that people play, like, if you were to show to the, if you were to show those to people 20 years ago, it might as well come from another country. You know, it might as well not be in English. 
they would have no idea, not even, not even the beginning of an idea what that was. And that was, you know, that's kind of how I felt when the meme thing hit is I was just kind of like, oh yeah, this, I'm not going to like hate this because this is obviously the new thing. I'm not going to like be the person who's upset about memes because that's, that's worse. <laughs> you know, the worst thing is that you're the, the guy who's angry at memes, you know, but I was just like, yeah, I don't think this is for me. I'm not going to, I'm not going to look at this, but I do think those people have an argument. And like, when you see like the role it's played politically, but that kind of goes hand in hand with what I was saying in the other episode about how the political has taken precedent over the creative. And I've given all these examples of how the creative has to declare itself politically before it can be accepted at least by a given group and it goes both ways too because i mean there's silly stuff too like even though i've talked about how like i gave the examples of these these eric clapton fans who are saying they're no longer fans because he's anti-vax and anti-lockdown and how you know this is a this has played out continually in recent years where musicians and famous people who don't go along with the current cultural power on the left, like the people who don't go along with that end up getting shamed and lose fans and receive really horrible comments, really articles, you know, it's, it's really nasty what's going on. And it's starting to seem more and more conspiratorial, honestly. Like I, like I was kind of letting that breathe. Honestly, I was letting all of that breathe. And I was like, Hmm, you know, like I can see that people are trying to gain power. I can see like where people are trying to I can see what people are trying to control, but like as of late, it feels highly, I mean, it's, it seems highly organized and, you know, I'm not going to go too far with that thought because where can I go with it? But still, it really is feeling highly organized at this point. Um, but, you know, it's with the political taking precedent over the creative in the last, at least, at least the last decade, it's ramped, it's, it's ramped up massively in the last few years but we've seen it coming for at least a decade. But with that, though, it's like because like you think about memes and like people who do make the argument that memes and this like kind of social transmission, this like mycelium communication between people online where they like they communicate in the forms of memes and, you know, these weird slogans that are based on. It's, 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 it, it is really fascinating to see how things mutate, how, how quickly they do. And how funny some people are, because that's the thing, too, is like, even though some of this is insane to me and some of it rubs me the wrong way, I mean, there's so many funny people who have come out of the woodwork who otherwise probably never would have been recognized, like never would have been able to apply their skills. Like, like I said, I'll, I'll once in a while, I'll see a meme that I'm just like, man, like, I'm just I'm so glad someone thought of that because I, like, I would I would have never thought of that. Uh, and and I, I appreciate that. You know, when I see that somebody thought of something I never would have thought about, I'm I'm happy, you know, because it's like, I wow, I get to like, <laughs> I get to think about that now too. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, memes are obviously highly political and that's one of the things about them. And But it is this sort of like mycelium effect where they're like this, it's like this social creativity where it's like they really, they're not... I mean, the argument that like they're a form of art, and here I am talking about like whether or not memes are art. Somebody shoot me. Uh, but I do think it's, I think it's good for me to think about for the very reason that I don't want to talk about it and I don't want to think about it. That, mean, that means that's a sign to me that I should. 
Um, but with them, uh, with, with memes and everything, like they really can't operate in a vacuum. And that's the interesting thing about them. And like the arguments, I think the arguments that I've seen that kind of make them out to be some form of modern art that is even more important than some of the art that I grew up valuing, like music and movies and all that. Uh, and the reason like these memes and everything have taken precedent over that and they've kind of become the new thing that people are focused on, the new thing that people go to, not just for entertainment, but for thoughts to things that they find interesting in a simple way, a straightforward way. But it's because it's like this social interaction. It's it's not like one person makes it and that's just what it is. It's this thing that somebody else will tweak and then they'll create these templates where other people do it. And there's all kinds of different forms, of course. You know, there's, there's different versions. I probably don't need to. I'm sure that if you're listening to this, you probably have seen more memes than me. You probably know more about them than me. Um, but uh, it is kind of amazing how like the significance of them relies on this sort of mycelium effect where it's like it's the the passing them between each other and tweaking them and changing them and making small variations and like some people can do it you know and you see when you see them like, like a lot of them are just terrible but you'll see one sometimes where it's just like once again like wow i can't believe someone thought of that and, and that feeling I have, like when I have that feeling, what it reminds me of is uh, when the first X-Files movie came out in the theater, me and two friends went with my friend's stepdad and his uncle. And his uncle was just kind of this simple blue collar guy, Uncle Dan. I didn't really know him. He was kind of quiet. I'd met him a few times because this was a good friend of mine. And we went and we, I don't think he'd ever watched the X-Files and, and the first X-Files movie like completely depends on having seen the show. It's about the, like the, oh, it's not like a one-off thing where there's like a, the, the monster series that they did where it was like each episode was self-contained. The movie was based on like an ongoing storyline that developed over the years on the different seasons of the X-Files. And so this guy, I don't think had any clue. Like it wasn't like he went in and got to see like. Oh, it's a guy who who can squeeze through air vents and rip people's livers out. And so you're going to watch this story about them trying to catch him. No, it's like this thing about this CIA conspiracy. And there's all these characters from the show. There's all these references that you probably it would take a while to understand. And so <laughs> we saw this movie with Uncle Dan and these other people. And like like as we're leaving, like my friend and I had to ride with Uncle Dan and then our other friend had to ride with his stepdad. And so like neither of us were the nephew, like the nephew rode in the other car. So like, it's just these two kids with this random Uncle Dan who we really didn't know very well. And we were talking about the movie and we were just like, well, what do you think, <laughs> Uncle Dan? <laughs> and he's like, well, it was pretty far-fetched. <laughs> And that's all he said. And we just laughed and like that. We, we, we put that into use for a while. You know, my friend Nick and I, we, we put that, we still use it like every once in a while. Like within the last few months, that's been, that's been in use. Like one of us saw a movie and I was just like, you know, I, I just had one thought. A little bit far-fetched. Because <laughs> what else would you say about the X-Files, like especially the first X-Files movie? Like what else would you say about that if you had, ne you had no real idea what the X-Files was? You're with these kids you don't know. A little bit far-fetched. <laughs>
but that's how I feel. Like I, I feel like that's my response. Like when I first saw memes, when I when I see like some of the memes people make, my response is just like, huh, that's pretty far fetched. But but sometimes they do impress. You know, sometimes they do impress me. I never just say impress. By the way, that was me. I had to swallow. Sometimes they impress. I don't talk like that. But uh, yeah, with uh, yeah, the the point I was gonna get to though about art and music is like you know I, I can I can totally buy the argument that either something is replacing what I what I considered like the core art and entertainment, you know, because I have to remember that like the things that I considered the most important forms of art and entertainment when I was a kid and everybody did, because it's like, it's not just me and my specific interests, but you think about like anybody who was born during like a, a 60, 70, 80 year span would say that like their main interests are music, you know, television, movies, you know, and everybody has different taste in that regard, books, like all of that, but, but everybody had that in common. You know, most people had those in common at any, at any given time, but that wasn't true throughout history. And many of those things are new. You know, many of those things are relatively new. And so people didn't always get into that exact thing. It's like, yeah, they've always had music. They've often had, you know, some sort of performance, some sort of storytelling, like the core ideas have always been there. Like when you look at the things that we've gone to for entertainment or that we find interesting, like the core has always been there throughout history. Like even when the technology was different, but technology has undoubtedly changed it. I mean, understatement. And then now we're, we're at a time though, where it's like, I'm, I went on this rant yesterday or I don't think it was a rant, but. I was just talking about how it really does seem like there has been this massive stagnation in the things that I considered valuable like throughout my life, like the forms of art and entertainment that I considered valuable throughout most of my life. Those do feel like they stagnated. And like my go-to response is that like the machine's broken, guys. I kick it. I wish I I had something loud I could kick that wouldn't break. I don't think I do. I don't want to go around kicking things in my house anyway, but... It's like my, my go-to response, like as somebody who's like my entire life, it's been uh, music, books, and TV, and movies, you know, uh, and now that I'm at this point, I, I, don't, I honestly don't think it's just me being bitter and jaded, because I honestly feel pretty open-minded about things right now. I really do feel like there's been this great stagnation in that stuff, and my go-to response, like being somebody who knows those things to be the things the things that I've always been into, what I know, my response is, hey guys, the machine's broken. Like we need to do something to fix it because everything that's coming out is, it sucks. Everything that's coming out of this machine sucks. I think something's broken. Let's fix it because I care about it because those are the things that I like. Those are, the, those are the things that I've always been interested in. But then I'm starting to accept that maybe that's not the machine anymore. You know, maybe those things will still exist and they'll probably be integrated into whatever the new stuff is. I mean, they already, that's already happening, but I'm, I'm starting to realize that, oh, you know, maybe that's over or maybe it's going to, it's going to dwindle. You know, maybe all of those things that I valued are going to get outdated just like everything does. 
And I guess I was taking a smaller picture view of that where I was kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, record players get, you know, because that's because I think what's so crazy about this, if it's even true, I think I mean, I think this is one way to look at, at what's happening right now with creativity, with entertainment, with all of that. I mean, arts and entertainment are often included together, A and E. So I'll just use that because that kind of covers everything that I'm referring to. Um, but I think I've been taking this very small view of it where, and, and I've had reason to, I think we all have, where it's like, oh yeah, there, there used to be live bands and then they were able to record it and put it onto records and then they were able to put it onto tapes and then, you know, eight tracks and CDs and then they made digital files. Like so far it's been these changes in technology have been much more focused on making the same thing adapted to each different form of technology that comes out. So it's like, oh yeah, we have to take this thing and now we have to make sure that this thing that was on records can go to tapes. But it's ultimately going to sound the same. Yeah, there's differences. One of, the, one of those freaky audiophiles will tell you about the difference in fidelity and sound between record, tape, CD, MP3. You know, they'll tell you all about that. Audiophiles, they, they sit children down. This is... The, this is I know I should probably give a warning before I get into this stuff, but hey, we're, we're this show's about talking about uncomfortable subjects, and it's not for anybody who's, a, who's too weak, too psychologically weak, um, but we have to address these things, and that's that audiophiles sit children down and they tell them about the difference between, the difference in fidelity between a record, a CD, a tape, an MP3, they even talk to them about wave files you know i mean you shouldn't be surprised like once one of those people has a, a child at arm's length you know they're going to tell him all kinds of stuff that kid will be a burden to everybody around him for the rest of his life because he'll get so used to a certain quality of listening and he'll demand the best headphones anyway uh, <laughs> um, no, but you know, you, you, you we've seen it kind of in, through that lens, though, where it's like each the changes have been mostly superficial. Like we've adapted the same thing for different formats for different technology, but we're reaching a point where like the change might be more drastic moving forward, or it might be more significant. It might be more mutant. Where it's not going to be, where art, and it's the same thing for art too, where it's like, oh yeah, we used to only look at prints of art. Like somebody does the original art, somebody makes a print of it, or they print it in a book. You can buy postcards of it. And then now it's like, I'm sure most people view, most of the art, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say probably, I'm going to say absolutely, most people view the majority of art in their life online. And they probably don't even realize that. They probably don't even realize that the majority of the art they view now is online. And that doesn't mean they go to art gallery websites. That doesn't mean they go like hunt down artists on Instagram or it doesn't mean they're going through art galleries online. You're exposed to so much art online. And I'm talking about just visual art here. I'm not even using some crazy, oh, memes are art. Oh, ideas are art now. On the internet, ideas are art. Ideas are art. Ideas are art? Is that name biblical? Ideas are, I, ideas are art? <laughs> but um, 
And I'm not even talking about that. I'm just talking about like literally like scanned images or digitally drawn images. I'm talking about drawings. I'm talking about paintings. I'm talking about art in that sense. If you want to include photography and graphic design and stuff, you can too. But the majority of visual art that people see, that's what I was looking for, visual art. The majority of visual art that people see today, I'm sure the vast majority, overwhelming majority of art they see is online. Even if they go, and that, that includes like the average person who's pretty much given up. Like there's a sort of person out there who doesn't buy books anymore. They don't really go do anything that would put them in contact with tactile art unless they see it on the wall of a restaurant or somebody's house. You know, there's a lot of people out there like that now who probably don't come in, into contact with printed art that often. And so almost everything they see is going to be online. And it's going to come up because, like I said, it's not just if they're seeking it out, but it's like you're just naturally going to see. Like if you watch things on YouTube, like, I mean, right now it's like I have I have like the Tim Dillon podcast up on YouTube paused. And the image is, is a drawing of him, a cartoon drawing of him with like a battle scene going on behind him. And it's like that's art. And a lot of art looks like that. Like a lot of art is digitally drawn cartoons. And that's insane. And it goes it goes back to the meme thing. Where memes are probably, you know, even even if you get away from like what a meme is and just look at, at it as a visual graphic with drawings, because some of them have drawings on them, that itself is just, it's art. Like even if, even if you had no idea what a meme was and you thought it looked like a stupid cartoon, you'd still say like that's art. So and I would say it's an understatement even to say that the majority of art people view now is digitally even if it is like a hand drawing, even if it is a painting, a lot, a lot of what you're going to see is going to be scanned. And I would say that's true for like the average person who really has little contact with print anymore. But I would say it's also true for the person who lives in a city and actually goes to art galleries and is maybe an artist themselves. I'm sure that they see most of the art they see online as well. I would say that's true for me. And I'm, you know, I draw, I draw, I own records, I own art books, I own I, I mean, my, my world is surrounded by printed art, yet I would say that most of the art that I see on a daily basis is definitely online. And again, I don't really seek it out because I don't really go to art gallery websites. I don't really check out that much art online, but I'm still exposed to it in mass because how can you not? You're inevitably going to see a lot of art. But it's still like a form of what I was talking about where it's been adapted to each phase like the same songs have been adapted for each medium or format technology our basic idea of what art is hasn't really changed that much like yes yeah, so there's an argument about digital versus analog and digital versus you know hands-on fine art you know there's arguments about that stuff but like the, the basic idea of what they're doing hasn't changed that much it's basically a superficial, it's a matter of superficial taste, really. And I would say, eh, you know, I would say it goes deeper than superficial taste. Like when you're talking about something that's hand-drawn versus done digitally. Not that that's even lesser or anything, but I would say the difference goes, like I'm not saying that digital art is lesser than hand-drawn art, but what I am saying is the difference between them is not superficial. So I don't necessarily mean that. But basically, it's a matter of medium. You know, it's, it's basically a matter of medium and taste. Um, 
And that's, you can say that for somebody's, the way somebody prefers to listen to their music. You can say it for the way somebody prefers their visual art. And in both cases, you even have people who say like, oh, I, I prefer to hear music live. They would, they would say they prefer hearing music from the source like that rather than on record. And you would have people too who are into visual art who say like, I prefer to own the original. You know, that's obviously people have strong preferences for those things. They have preferences all along the line though. I mean, there's people who prefer, they're happy just to get anything. They're happy to hear it in any capacity. But I think like where I'm getting with this is like whether or not we're evolving out of these things. Are we evolving out of these things is what I'm asking. Like, is the reason there's been this stagnation in what would I would consider the classic arts and entertainment, the traditional arts and entertainment that I know, is that stagnation, is that sort of novelty and hybridization, that kind of just overall lack of life, in my opinion, is that because everything is evolving into something else? And so the focus really isn't on those anymore in the same way. And young people play a vital role in that. And I think that shouldn't be missed out on where the people who are young now, like the people who are in those ages, because like, you know, I, I still have a creative capacity. I'll say that. But my drive to create has lessened significantly since I was in my, like when I was in my late teens, like, like looking back, I, you know, you, you wish you could tap into that again. Because when I was in my late teens and early 20s, I had so much energy for creativity, like not always the best ideas, you know, not even that, but just my desire to sit there. Like I remember sitting in front of editing software. I remember like using four tracks and just doing all kinds of things, like spending, it took so much time to do what I was doing. Same with art. Like it was, you know, actually, you know, I didn't draw as much as I could have back then. Now that I think about it. Like when I think back then, it was, I think I drew a lot slower. So I don't know that I would, I definitely went through a phase later where I was drawing at a much more rapid rate and liking what I was doing for the most part. But so I don't know if that really pertains to that, but I guess what I'm talking about is like devoting the amount of time and energy where like in my late teens and early twenties, it was nothing to devote all of my free time to that, all of my focus. And I didn't have to make myself do it. And that's true down the line. I mean, that's what you see from bands. That's, that's why when you look back at, you know, many of your favorite bands, they really had that initial momentum and there was something special about them during those formative years. And so now like the, the generations who have been that age for the last decade, the people who have been like in their teens and early twenties for the last decade, they really did come from a different world than I did. And chances are, if you're listening to this, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I don't really know like when things officially started to change or if it was gradual or if there's a major drop off at some point. But I do know that like people who were in their teens and early 20s in the last decade had a significantly different childhood than I did. You know, just in terms of technology, in terms of what was available, in terms of information. Because that's something I have to remember. Like, I met a girl who was really awesome, and she was into some very, like, niche music. And she was a lot younger than I was. And I was kind of amazed at how much she knew. Because she wasn't a record collector. You know, she, she wasn't very old. And I was just amazed, like, how much she knew about the genre and just different records and things like that. And I think part of that is just... 
the information is there. Like, like so much more information is available. Because keep this in mind, like this is something, that, this isn't meant to be another old guy comment because I don't think I qualify. I don't, like if I'm an old guy, everybody's an old guy, I feel like. But this is another one of those things to remember, which is that like, don't, don't even take for granted the fact that you can find an entire band's discography in a split second on the internet. Like, you used to not have just, like, a like unless you were really into the band, like, it was really difficult to know what a band's full discography di was, which is why it was so shocking when, when a band would get big and a record would come out and they'd get known for that. Like, you had never heard of them before. And then you find out they had, like, three albums before that. I mean, Pantera was like that, where, you know, Pantera got big, and then it turned out they had all these, you know, kind of glam power metal albums in the 80s. I think they had four. I want to say Pantera had four. I'm not a Pantera expert, believe it or not. Actually, Pantera was the first tape I ever bought on my own as a kid, but Vulgar Display of Power um, was the first tape I ever bought on my own, but I uh, was never a big fanatic or anything, though. I was never a big Pantera fan after that. I don't think I even bought another album of theirs. But I do have my Pantera credibility because that was the first tape I bought myself. Um, uh, but, it, but anyway, like uh, with Pantera, like finding out that they had a bunch of albums before they got well known. And you would find that with a lot of bands. Like if you got into punk or something, you know, I, I was mentioning when I was talking about the Misfits, how it was like, even though by the late nineties when I discovered the misfits, even though by then like their discography was as available and streamlined as it ever was previously, like way more, it was way easier to like go to a record store and be able to get the scoop on like the misfits, various albums and collections and things. But even then it was kind of chaos. Cause like, where do you go? I mean, I guess by then the internet was around, so I probably was able to figure it out with the misfits. But before that, like before you were actually on the internet, you know, you really kind of had to, you were lucky if you knew what a band's discography was. You were lucky if you knew what, like, I mean, for that matter, you're lucky if you know what the right album to buy is. Like, you're really gambling by just buying a band's record. Like, you don't know if you're going to like it. And that would be good because sometimes you'd buy it and be like, okay, this actually turned out to be great. It wasn't what, it wasn't the album I thought it was. It doesn't sound like the album of theirs that I know. But hey, I gambled and it's great. You know, that would happen. But then sometimes you just be like, what the hell did I just buy? I just wasted my money. I, I wasted my limited money on some record by a band that I like, but it's some shitty record I'd never heard of. You know, that would happen. But so like the internet just having discography lists and even that, like it wasn't a given that you'd go online for a few years and find a band's entire discography until those sites started existing. Like until there started to be websites that were dedicated, I mean, Discogs, the name of that speaks for itself, but even beyond that, which I don't know, that site's a little weird, um, but even beyond that, like people would just start to publish discographies for bands. Like if you're familiar with, there's the, the band Man is the Bastard, you know, a cult favorite of many of us. And like they had a huge discography with tons of splits, tons of random vinyl, you know, they just, they did a lot, you know, it was all DIY and all over the place. And some, sometimes they would even record under like different names or they had previous bands and just things like that. So it was very difficult. And I remember somebody just made a, a website and all it was, was white text or sorry, white, a white background with black text. And it just had their discography, their full discography. And so you'd be lucky to find things like that where somebody just listed it all out.
But like when you're a kid, you really don't know that. Like before the internet, you really had no idea what you were getting yourself into. You really just had to, if you went to the record store and they had a CD by that band and you didn't recognize it, like you just have to look at the year. You'd have to like look at the art and kind of get a feel for it. I mean, it was kind of amazing in that way because you didn't actually know what you were going to find. You know, and of course, like if you buy things from a band, you might get like a printed catalog or a flyer or something that lists that info, but it was not a given. Especially if a band was trying to distance themselves with their roots, because I think that was the case with Pantera, where it was like they had gone for this new image and they were doing something entirely different. So they really didn't want to remind people that they were this kind of glammed up big hair metal band for years. But, uh, yeah, that's just like one of those changes where I'm just like, oh yeah, holy shit. Like there was a point in time where it was really difficult to even know what a band's full discography was, like what all they had done. Like you just had to go with either you knew somebody who knew or the record store got all that in or somebody told you, you know, you'd have to do a lot of asking around. And I wouldn't even say, I even like came up on the fumes of that. Like I'm not trying to act like I was Mr. Mr. Music. Hey, I'm, I'm Mr. Music. <laughs> It's almost a beauty to like a name that simple. Like people come up with all these creative nicknames these days just to be like, hey, I'm, my name's Eric and I go by the name Mr. Music. It's like, oh, somebody lock that guy up. But no, it's not like I was Mr. Music. And I, you know, I have a lot of respect for the people who came before and kind of established networks around this stuff. And, you know, I, I really, I would be role playing if I pretended that I was part of that. Yeah, like when I was a teenager, there were a couple people I tape traded with. But I was not, I was never part of these early tape trading networks. Of course not. You know, I was too young. So I really only got the fumes of that. And, I, and, and, and two, it's like by the time that I was truly serious about my interest, my interest in music, I did have the internet and more and more information was popping up. And, you know, in addition to nerds and gamers doing what they do on the internet, people into music saw the internet as, as an excellent resource right away and so that was kind of cool like that was a, a cornerstone of the early internet is just underground people didn't matter like music was heavily represented even in the early days when i got on but i have to say that i mean that all existed by the time that i was truly serious about music so i'm not i'm not i'm truly not an old guy who was like yeah we did everything by the mail and you had to drive across the state to do it <sighs> just to buy this type of, just to buy music from this genre and, you know, all that. And that is kind of a weird thing though, like just to transition, well, just to finish that point up. Yeah. It's like, I can see where it's like, that was the world I grew up in and things have changed so much and a whole new generation of people too. Like maybe, yeah, I would say we're, we're now on to a whole other generation. Like the people who are at the age where people are at their most where they want to prove themselves the hardest, like when they're young, like teenagers, early 20s, when they really want to prove themselves. Because that's part of it, is that's the age where like, usually people don't get recognition yet. So these are people who have been working on something, who want to express something, who want to do something. And during that period is like when you're not just having to practice and like get your chops down, but you know, you're also looking for attention, you're looking for acknowledgement. You know, so that's an important part of it too, is that you don't feel like you either haven't given up yet or you haven't hit some sort of resting place. Because I mean, as a creative person, that's kind of how I feel right now. Like, I don't feel like I'm done with it. I just, it's like, it just doesn't have as much of a priority. And honestly, I, I prefer ideas at this point over 
material creativity. It's just where I'm at. I just prefer going off about ideas and just thinking about things and talking to people about things these days. But it's nice to know it's there. It's, it's not something I'll ever give up or anything like that. But it's just, I'm just not that teenage boy. I'm not that guy in his early 20s who has this competitive drive to just work on art all the time. And the people who are that age now, though, they're a generation younger than me. Like, those people are officially a generation younger than me. And I think that we've just seen a trickle of difference. Because, like, when I think about people who are five years younger than me, like, they still kind of grew up in the, in the same world I did. They still, they were old enough to have at least seen the same things around. Like, to at least have been in environments where those things existed. Like, they might not have been old enough to really know what it was like to rely on a record store for music or anything like that, but they at least remember record stores being around. They at least remember that that was the world that they came up in and that kind of thing. So people who are like five years younger, it's like, yeah, there's going to be differences. But then when you look at people now who are like 10, 15, or even 20 years younger, and these people are on the front lines of, these are the people who should be expressing themselves but they're coming up in a time where all of those traditional mediums, all of those traditional formats, all those those ways of expressing yourself that I value, like, you know, art, music, books, TV, movies, and, and TV and movies are a little different. Like the entertainment side is a little different, you know, although it's been affected by all this because it needs creativity. The It... It needs a sacrifice of the arts and or, uh, the entertainment side. It needs the arts to sac to, to do a blood sacrifice every once in a while <laughs> to keep it going, and it in turn rewards it. But uh, so it's like we're talking about a generation of people now who grew up in a, in a completely different world, you know, where technology had changed much more rapidly, and where other things have taken precedent, where politics have taken precedent. You know, because I feel like creativity always needs a little pushback. It's why, like, I don't mind a little bit of censorship. I don't mind, like, a little bit of resistance because I feel like that tension is necessary. You know, it's kind of like if you're, a, if you're a kid and you're creating stuff and your parents just think it's the best thing in the world, it's not going to be as good. Or if other people, it doesn't have to be, like, a parent thing. Like, oh, my parents suck. It doesn't even have to be about that. But just if other people, like... If you're getting nothing but adoration from people about what you do, you're not going to push yourself as hard. So, you know, it's not that I'm completely against pushback. I kind of like there to be a little bit of a push and a pull. And I think good creativity comes out of that. Even if it's not, even if it's not like in direct response to that. You know, even if it's not political, it's like we've seen we've seen more very politically charged times in the past. Like you think about like when Reagan was president, a lot of good music came out of that cross genre. It could have been a coincidence. You know, I know people who are into punk and hardcore say would say it's not because there was a lot of that stuff was in direct response to Reagan. But as far as metal, experimental music, a lot of even just pop music, you know, even just what was going on in pop music in the 80s. You know, you could say that all of that kind of coincided with Reagan politics, but, you know, so I think sometimes that happens. It doesn't have to address the politics. It doesn't have to directly interact with the politics, 
But you can see where sometimes good stuff comes out when politics are at the forefront, but I don't feel that's been the case recently. Politics have come to the forefront again, but it doesn't seem that art has benefited from that unless you kind of take this transcendental look at art where it's not about those old formats that I grew up loving, where it's like those have mutated or even just been left behind by newer generations who are communicating in these weird new ways. And some of the stuff you see, like, I mean, I'll see some of these TikTok videos and things of young people. A lot of them are focused on the whole gender issue. And I mean, you can kind of tell that's what each video is going to be about. Like when you just see the still of it, I, I try not to immerse myself too much in that. Uh, I try not to immerse myself in like watching those because I, I don't know what to say about them at this point. And it's, oh boy, <laughs> there's a lot to think about there. Um, but, you know, with those, like that's them expressing themselves and you'll see them and, and there's a formula to those videos. Like the ones I've seen, there's a formula to them where they do this kind of like jerky, these very jerky motions. They're, they're making caricatures. You know, I was talking yesterday about all these caricatures that have emerged, like, or, or just how, how caricatures are, are kind of like all we have to leave for posterity. Like most of our understanding of history, especially ancient history, is at best a caricature of whatever that culture was at the time, whatever that culture had, who those people were. It's at best a caricature and not necessarily a cartoon. It could be a serious looking caricature. Could be like a stern, <laughs> a stern caricature, but still a caricature. It's still an exaggerated version. And so that's what we can hope to leave for posterity too. We can only hope that a caricature of us remains into the future. And I mean, that's probably what we'll see with the arts and everything that we valued. Like the, the generations of us who grew up with, with that being the, the standard like that stuff will probably continue on, but it'll be different and it, and it could even become a caricature unto itself. But just thinking about the fact that it's an entirely different generation now, and maybe this stuff is evolving. Maybe the entire system is evolving. Like there's no way we can possibly predict what, I mean, there's no, first of all, there's no way we can possibly understand exactly what this heavy digital influence has done. Like we're, we're living it. So it's very difficult for us to actually understand it or know what it is. It's going to take a lot of time, probably more time than our lifetimes will allow for people to fully understand this period of hyper digitization of everything from all of our media, all of our entertainment, all of our, um, us, like how much time we spend representing ourselves in there, you know, so it's this thing that we can't possibly understand right now ourselves, but I think we can recognize that it's caused a massive change in just about every aspect of our lives. And it's not surprising that old, the old way of doing things is, is just kind of, it's, it's exactly that. It's the old way of doing things. I mean, you think about how few people want to be writers now. Like I have a friend who writes, you know, he'll submit things to journals and submit things to, um, to like magazines, you know, he'll write fiction stories for magazines. He'll submit stories to those, but it's like, and, and you know, I know, I think he wants to write at some point, like a, an actual novel. And he's been working on a couple over the years, but just that, that world is so different now. Like the time in which you did that, it was so different. Like when we think of like, like the, the authors that we 
you know, yeah, of course people still buy books and good books still come out. I think my friend should very much keep pursuing that avenue. I think it's, it's the right one for him, but it's just, it's the world has shifted so much that it means something. And what I'm saying too, is that it's like music means something different. That the culture surrounding music means something different now. The culture surrounding art in general is much different now. And so I think some of these things that we treasure so much will just become more and more antiquated. But it's different. It's so different though, because I was saying how like memes, for example, and the, the popularity of memes, which I never would have predicted. I like to consider myself a, a baby Nostradamus who prophesizes and I, I'll of course always tell you about the times that I got it right. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I never would have predicted, I never even would have made a prediction. Like, but I never would have predicted that memes would have been this long-standing. I mean, they've influenced political elections in huge ways. There's a lot of people who believe that Trumpsfeld's election came through people just burrowing into these, into into those holes where, like, and that was the vibe I got. Like when I was paying attention to what was going on online in 2016, it really did feel like it felt like a magic ritual. And I've heard other people say that before too, where it was like people were creating these images, which are very esoteric in reality. It's hard to call them that because it's like they're images of cartoon frogs and inside message board, not even message board, but like inside 4chan jokes and things that I just have no contact with. But it's like, you can see where it becomes very esoteric very quickly. And when you think about like, if you were to say that, oh yeah, you know, when Donald Trumpsfeld became president, which a lot of people couldn't believe at the time that Donald Trumpsfeld was the president. But like if you were to tell somebody that like one of the big contributing factors or at least a factor that can't be ignored, like whether you think memes got Donald, whether you think like magic rituals using memes got Donald Trumpsfeld into the office or not, like whether you believe that or not, I think everybody has to acknowledge that people doing that in mass played a role. What role, I don't know if you could even measure it. I don't know. The, the, it's hard to measure those things, but people are aware of it. People know that that was going on. That was in people's heads heavily at the time to the point where Hillary Clinton's team even released that statement that like the frog was a hate symbol. And then that just added more fuel to Trumpsfeld. Like I still remember when that, when that statement, that it was like a press release where they're like, this frog is, is, has become a, a hate symbol. And it's like, you don't even realize you're playing right into the hands of these people by doing that. But anyway, so it's, it's very esoteric. Like, like if you were to tell somebody that Donald Trumpsville got elected president in part because people were using these images of a cartoon frog and decorating it in weird ways and changing it and mutating it. I mean, it was a meme. And combined with all sorts of other esoteric ideas and weird phrases, like they would come up with their own phrases that made no sense. Like they, they made, they truly made no sense, but yet everybody was doing them. They were like, it was like a mantra. It was, it was really bizarre to watch. And like when Donald Trump's fell, got elected the night he got elected, my mom was in the hospital with a stroke I wasn't living with her, I was, but I was staying at her house. I was watching her house while she was in the hospital. And she had this old bottle. I was still drinking. So I, there was this old bottle, not even an old bottle. It was an unopened bottle of like cherry or one of those British drinks. 
like a liqueur, something that'll get you drunk, but it's a lot to deal with for someone like me. Like I was just sitting there on the couch. Like I think I had I had that live broadcast from the comedy store on on my computer with a bunch of comedians. And then I had the news on in the background. I was taking time off from work because of my mom's stroke. I think I had some weed. I think I was smoking weed at the time. And I was just drinking from this big bottle of cherry or sherry. Is that is it sherry? I don't remember. It was a surreal night. It was an utterly surreal night. But I was kind of like, and I was also like looking around on the internet as this was all happening. And there was a weird force in the air. There was a real, there was a, I mean, granted, I was in a weird place, but there was a really weird kind of element in the air. And a lot of it revolved around these memes. A lot of it revolved around not just these Trumpsfeld people. And, and for that matter, just trolls and just random people, probably like a whole, uh, just really a whole assortment of misfits. Not only was it them putting all of this emphasis on these ever mutating memes and these images of animals, in some cases like symbols, just all kinds of things that to trace back like where they even came up with it or got it or why it took off with them. It's all esoteric, even though it's all out there in public, even though it's all on the internet. Like, even though somebody could have traced that all back, like, I know that that frog came from a, uh, like a, like a non-political webcomic or something like it, it was already a meme maybe. And, you know, cause I don't, I don't, I don't know about it, but from what I gather, it was, it was from a webcomic that was already a meme and then it was taken over by, by this. But just even the fact that like somebody decided to use that for this, other people liked it, they used it in their own way and it became this esoteric, like, you know, animal symbol. And, uh, and there was a lot of just weird stuff. There was a lot. I know that people were pointing out all these strange synchronicities going on surrounding that as well at the time. You know, this was just, it was happening. And if you were to try to explain that to somebody, though, where it's like a, a part of the campaign for president in 2016 involved cartoons that were distributed by people digitally of frogs and you know, just goofy comics and goofy sayings. And meanwhile, the opposition is pointing at it saying like, that is, that's the epitome of hatred. That is disgusting. If, if you elect the man who, whose campaign is being represented by these memes and cartoons, like it will be the worst thing to happen since Adolf Hitler came to power. And you just go, okay, like things are, are truly absurd. Things are, it's the, the, the surreal, the surreality, we call it that the surreal reality. Like, like it was already in the air, you know, it was, it was already like a, that was already a thick fog, an omen of like what was to come, you know, just the fact that that was even going on. But I mean, I think what always gets me about that is people not being able to distance themselves from the absurdity. Like, for example, like, there were people who were seriously mad about this cartoon frog. And Hillary thought it would be an effective, or, or her campaign advisor thought it would be an effective measure to release a, a press statement about how this frog was, was a, a hate symbol. Like, rather than just laugh it off or distance yourself from it, like, they saw it as something significant enough that they needed to address it to their detriment at the time. Because I think it made her campaign look even sillier. Because I think that's sort of the effect of it. 
I, I mean, I think that's sort of, I think whether it was intentional or not, I mean, I think that was sort of the strategy of it where it's like, we're going to put this cartoon frog in your face all the time and make it do all kinds of stupid and weird things. And we're going to, and, and we're going to see how you react. And they reacted horribly. They reacted very, they, they played right into their hands where they released a, like a, a presidential candidate released a press statement about it. And, the, and I read the press statement and it was, there was no way to even do it right. That's the thing I remember thinking is like, there's no way to even do this right. Like, it's not just that this press statement is incredibly silly and stupid and makes Hillary's campaign look bad. It's that there's no way to even do this right. There's no way, there's no way to like do this. There's no way to address this meme without looking like an idiot. And so that's you know something to consider where it's like if the thing you're saying can't be said in any way that works, that's a good sign not to say it. And so it was almost like that was the trap all along, which is like, we're going to do this extremely absurd thing. And if you take the absurdity seriously, you're going to look like a complete fraud and an idiot. And that's exactly what it did, in my opinion. Like looking at that objectively, that's what it did. It's like falling for a joke. And I mean, these are people who, who on the internet consider themselves trolls and that's what they've been doing their entire lives. That's what all of those people have been doing in an, because like a lot of those people, like they had probably been internet trolls for many years. They've been part of these message boards and forums and everything where like they were trolls before all this. And then now they were politicized and it was like half ironic. You know, it's like, I think a lot of these people half ironically supported Trumpsfeld and then they like got so sucked into it that they actually were like, you know what? Like I'm going all in on this. I think a lot of those people initially went that way because I don't think a lot of those people were Republicans. I don't think a lot of those people were maybe even politically active at all before that. And so the fact that they were, they went all in on this partially probably out of absurdity, it seems like. And then uh, they were going to, they were using the same techniques they used on forums, but they were doing it on a massive scale, like to the point where they actually, I mean, I, I hate to even use this terminology, but it's just, it's the, it's the terminology that it's the, it's the, this is the words that we use today, which is they actually successfully trolled uh, Hillary Clinton. Like they used like a, a just classic, like message board technique from back in the day to troll the possible president of the United States, like just by like hammering home this cartoon frog that, you know, yeah, there's weirdos who are attached to that. Like you'll still come across people online who still use that stuff. Like, you know, you know, cause it, I guess cause, cause it was, there are people who just, they got so sucked into that, that like now they just, they're still using the cartoon frog. Like it still means something to them, which is kind of amazing too, to think about. But, um, but uh, what was I going to say about that? Um, uh, yeah, those, well, those guys, yeah, they they they've like held on to it like as a symbol of for themselves. But yeah, they, really, all it was was it wasn't. Well, I guess what I was going to say is just that it was like when they were using that in 2016, it wasn't like they actually planned on making it like permanent. It wasn't like this is our symbol, guys. It became that, I guess, given the fact that people are still using it, some of them at least. 
but at the time it wasn't necessarily like this is like our symbol and it's exactly this is our flag and there's no way we're going to ever give it up it was something completely throwaway like using a frog from a different webcomic and making him right wing was you know just that's a total throwaway move and so it's not just that Hillary's campaign responded so drastically to what was, you know, an obvious goof. It's that they reacted that way to a complete throwaway. You know, it's it's like if you sent a decoy into someone's base, like, and it was a really well-made decoy, like it was like a perfect decoy and it was expensive. Maybe maybe it's a real human and they're it's like it's like a guy that's really good at what he does and like they they get the decoy and they kill him or they destroy it it would suck because you're like oh that was a really good decoy and that was really that was really a well-made decoy but if you throw in like a cheap decoy like if you send a cheap decoy into that same situation it's made out of styrofoam and the the guys in the the base get it you're like oh well it was styrofoam and it's it's kind of funny because they, they just wasted a bunch of manpower and time while we we can go sneak in here. It's kind of that's a weird example, but it's kind of the same idea where it's like that whole frog thing was basically like, we're going to this is basically a styrofoam toy. This is like a Happy Meal toy. And we're going to pretend that it's like a symbol of everything that we are. And we're going to see what you do about it. And. Hillary's campaign was like that Happy Meal toy is it's cheap mass produced garbage and it's it, it kills children children under the age of five are going to choke on, you know it's like and it's like oh yeah this was we don't care about this like this was a total throwaway decoy just to take some of your energy and you can see that, that happened like I mean you know obviously it's not measurable whether that whole thing actually made a meaningful difference in the election there's no way to ever measure that but the fact that it got so much publicity, the fact that I still remember it, I don't remember most of those things. Like most of those things that I saw, and it wasn't like I was immersed in them, but most of the things that I saw around that time that were like Trumpsfeld related or, you know, right wing memes or anything related to that. Most of what I saw, like I've, it was in, it was in one year and out the other because it was so esoteric. It wasn't made for mass consumption. It wasn't like I'm with her. It wasn't that kind of stuff. You know, it wasn't like the equivalent of that. It was just like some saying that you didn't even know where they got it. Like the one I do remember is like people were saying like, give him a coat, like a jacket. I have no idea what that meant or where it came from. Maybe it was something Trumpsfeld said. It was probably something he said, but still like you would see that on a bunch of things. Like you would see these memes and there would be that. Give this man a coat, give this man a jacket, whatever it was. And it was just like, huh. Like if you don't know the meaning of that, and who knows what the meaning even is? I don't. I don't know what the meaning of that is to this day. I don't know what that meant. So that's what I mean. Where it's like not the. It's not like they were creating infographics for mass consumption. These were weird little artifacts coming from a, a very, not a very obvious place. But they were still like cheap and throwaway. You know, they were effortless. Like in the same way that like like back in the day, somebody would troll somebody by putting no effort into an argument and then somebody would be responding with like paragraphs and paragraphs of like very serious debate. 
breaking down all of the logic and rationale and then like the person the next person would respond with something that's equally effortless and stupid just to keep egging this person on and they're getting angrier angrier and angrier you know it's like it's just being a trickster you know and uh i don't know i didn't really see that much of that in the last election what little i saw of it just seemed to be people kind of trying to redo what they did in 2016 and obviously way more was going on there were so many other things culturally at work at work between like yeah there's just there was so much at work i mean just looking at that though like between 2016 like when you look back at 2016 that seems like a much more innocent time that seems like a much simpler time and not just because it was pre-coronavi just the way people were even just taking in information you know, the way people were talking, like there were, there were definitely shadows of what would come, you know, for sure. But still, it does come across now like a much more innocent time. And it just shows you that like the difference that time can make. And I don't think that's just Trumpsfeld, you know, because that's the argument that a lot of people have made is like, oh, the reason why everything's so fucked up now, you know, the, the reason everything's so fucked up now is because that's what happens when you got Donald Trumpsfeld in, in office. I mean, that definitely did something. Having, <laughs> having Donald Trumpsfeld in office definitely did something. That's, that's definitely a, a sign. I think I see that as a symptom, though. You know, you see that as a symptom, like how, how strange that is. Like the fact that that could even happen should tell you that that's not the thing itself. Like the fact that that could even happen should tell you that that is just a symptom, not the source. But a lot of people's brains reset around that time and they started thinking like, oh, Donald Trumpsfeld is the source of all this. The reason why everything is the way it is, the reason why everything's so weird is because of Donald Trumpsfeld. Donald Trumpsfeld appeared... Donald Trumpsfeld, at the time that he appeared in politics, he was a joke candidate. Like, I still remember hearing that he had announced himself as a candidate for president, and it was just completely laughed off. Nobody took it seriously because it was like any number of other celebrities or famous people who have done the same. It's sort of just this, they do it just to do it. It's publicity. It's like sending a message. But the fact that people actually viewed him as a viable candidate, like, that didn't happen in a vacuum. Things were already starting to get really weird which is why it made sense to for this extremely weird politician, this extremely weird man. Because when I look at him, I just think he's he's extremely eccentric. He's that's what he was before. I mean, he was the eccentric businessman. He was the eccentric, ultra famous rich man. You know, it's like it's an archetype, and those guys are usually assholes too. You know, it's not like. Usually when guys in his position, like before he was in politics, usually when guys in his position are nice, they're fake nice. You know, a lot of them tend to like be smooth operators, but he's the used car salesman that like, you know, is a used car salesman. Like he's not even good at tricking you as far as that goes. Like, whereas, like I said before, like other politicians are used car salesmen too, but they're very slick about it. They're the used car salesman who, when you drive home, you you buy this junker. You go to the used car lot and you buy this freaking junker. 
you're driving home and uh, you just have this bad feeling because you know the guy who sold it to you, he's Donald Trumpsfeld, and you know that he ripped you off. Because that's the difference. It's like with Donald Trumpsfeld, if he sold you a used car, you drive home and you feel shitty because you're like, oh, I, I know that he got an extra $500 out of me. But then some other politician or, or businessman, you buy a used car from them and you're driving home smiling and you're like, I think Rick likes me. Oh man, you know, Rick gave me the best deal. Meanwhile, you paid like $2,000 extra. Like you didn't get taken for $500. You got taken for like an extra 2000 But you're driving home and you're like, man, I think, dude, Rick's cool. Like like I, I could just tell, like me, Rick's my friend. You know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't rip me off. He, he gave me a great deal. You know, I, I really like Rick, but it's like because Rick has this finesse. I don't know who Rick is, but he has finesse and he looks good and he, ha he has everything's together. It's like it's why we like our politicians to look so slick. Because it's like if they act right and they look right, we have a tendency to think, well, you know, I, I, I kind of like him. I, you know, he seems so stately. He couldn't possibly be doing anything to undermine my freedom. He couldn't possibly be making any kind of weird backroom decisions motivated by money, motivated by this or that, because they look at him. And just look at him. His hair is in place. Like, he's got that look. Meanwhile, Trumpsfeld, it's like that's a guy where you just, you know off the bat what he's all about. And in politics, there's sort of a dilemma there where it's like, do you want your thieving, parasitic, quote-unquote, representative? Do you want it to be obvious, or do you want it to be hidden? And this seems like some sort of, like, I don't know. This feels like a cliche point or something to make, but it, that's kind of the, the deal, I feel like. Not to say that every single politician is inherently corrupt, but just knowing what we know, knowing what we know, and then including... What we don't know, but it's probable, like when you think about all of the stuff that we don't know about what these guys do, even the stuff we just know for a fact is bad enough. And so it really does come down to the idea where it's like, would you rather it be completely obvious that you're being lied to? Would you rather it be completely in the open? Or would you just rather... Be like, oh, you know, well, I, I kind of give him the benefit of the day. I kind of like him. I think he likes me. You know, or would you rather just stay in the dark about it because the presentation is good? Because that's, that's sort of like when people were like, back to normal. Back to normal. That's what they were looking for. It wasn't that they, it wasn't like they have any actual understanding of what goes on politically. Like they have no actual understanding of what the president does. Like all those people who were like, oh, I'm so glad Obama bin Biden won because it just means back to normal. Respectability, back to normal. You know, people who were saying that, I understand why they felt that way. Like I completely get why what they were saying. Like they want, you know, they, they want the comfort that they felt when the world was different. But there's no going back to what they think is normal. There's no going back to like the 1980s and 90s even the early 2000s, like we can't actually go back there. I mean, this might be, an, you know, an analog to uh, what I was saying about art and music and entertainment, where it's like, 
I'm sitting here being like, the machine's broken and I want it to get back to normal where there's new bands and like movements and cool things coming out. And like younger people are looking at me and they're like, back to normal? Like we're working on this machine. I kind of feel like that that's happened in politics too when people are like, oh God, Donald Trump's failed. The machine's broken. We just need Jabama bin Biden, the the amazing mechanic to get back into the machine and fix that machine that Donald Trumpsfeld broke. It's like the machine was already breaking down, which is why Donald Trumpsfeld became the president. It was going to break whether Donald Trumpsfeld was the president or not. Joe Obama bin Biden is not a mechanic and he's not going to fix that machine. A whole new machine has come out. And this kind of fits what I was saying yesterday about how I think that the future of politics needs to capitalize on weirdness. Not in a really superficial way, because like when you look at uh, like Donald Trumpsfeld, it's like, yeah, he's superficially weird, but what makes him actually eccentric comes out when you look at like the whole of his personality and all of those little details you learn about him. You know, that's that to me is when you realize how weird he truly is. The way he talks is very weird. Because, I mean, you used to only see it on TV. You know, he was this businessman, entertainer, eccentric New Yorker. But it's like when you see that transition to the political stage, you realize, oh, yeah, this is just really weird. Because he's not just a showman. Because politicians are showmen. Like they talk, even though they don't, they talk in this very unnatural way. Like how Obama's voice, like if somebody talked to you that way in person, like face to face, you'd be like, what the heck is wrong with this guy? But because we have this expectation that a politician will speak like an orator, people consider Obama a good speaker. And whereas with like Trumpsfeld, though, it's like you see where like, the way he talks kind of seemed like, oh, he's a showman and this is a way that professional talkers talk and that's what he was like on TV. But then when that transitioned to the political stage, people weren't comforted by it. Like, because normally a showman comforts people. Like the reason he talks that way is because it's most people are fine with it. Most people like it. It's why like a political showman talks the way Ben Biden used to talk when he was younger and when... And how Obama talked, and pretty much every politician throughout history, pre-Trumpsfeld. So it's it's that sort of thing where people want the president to sound like that, even though it's not natural. But they want like a the showman's voice comforts them, and it gives them security because he sounds like a leader, and he sounds like someone who belongs at a podium. And then you have Trumpsfeld, who is a showman, but you realize he's not the kind of showman that comforts people. Like Jimmy Fallon probably would, people probably would have supported Jimmy Fallon more than they they did Trumpsfeld because he sounds like a a guy who belongs in front of a mic in our current climate. Like he has that sort of delivery. I don't know, that's a weird guy to bring into it, but people would have been more happy with Jimmy Fallon being president than even Donald Trumpsfeld. (laughs) That's my, (laughs) I'm just going to double down on that. I'm going to bring that up to people. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm just imagining a visual like 
Oh man, I'm not, I'm not even laughing at my own joke. I just started thinking about the actual like visual, and then I started to imagine like how that would be normal too. Like like that, <laughs> like like we do live in a time where like you wouldn't be shocked, like you wouldn't be that surprised if Jimmy Fallon was running for president and people actually took it seriously. Because that's what I mean about the machine breaking down and the machine being broken. Donald Trumpsfeld just happened to be the man at the right. He, he managed to be the right man at the right time and place to like get inside that machine while it was breaking down it wasn't that he broke it but it's like you wouldn't be shocked if jimmy fallon came out of the woodwork as like a president or something like but i'm just imagining the old guy now who like commenting on that because in the same way because i mean like i've said this before and i said this I, I was saying this in 2016 even that i knew that donald trumpsfeld at the very least had a chance if not a significant chance to become president when i saw how the left was reacting because initially, people who supported him, you know, like I was saying, like, people didn't really take it seriously. It was like any celebrity announcing that he's a candidate. It was just like, oh, yeah, Donald Trump. So he's been in the press constantly. He was doing the whole Obama birth certificate thing. He's on some show, The Apprentice, The, the, the Apprentice, which I never watched once. I would never, I, I had no interest. So it's just like, oh, yeah, th that guy who loves attention is doing something for publicity. Nobody took it seriously, and, I, and the Republicans certainly didn't take him seriously. The Republicans were not focused on, oh, he's our guy. You know, there was a lot of, you think about, like, there was that whole thing where, like, one by one, he basically went through and chopped every Republican candidate's head off. It was, you know, that it's kind of a, a crazy thing to have watched. Like, I don't even think I realized what was going on at the time, but, like, when Trump's held was going through all those Republican debates, it was just might is right. Like, it was just pure, like, savagery. It was just pure might is right. He was just seriously, like, chopping each guy's head off one at a time and saying, like, you're not going to have a choice. Republicans aren't going to have a choice as, as far as who their their final candidate is. Like, that's what happened. Like, there really, there wasn't that much finesse to it. And then he had these bizarre internet forces on his side too like doing rituals with weird symbology so he was just like he just went through and he just bulldozed everybody you know you think about all the the strings that have been pulled in, on the democratic side and like a lot of people are really upset about that including democrats a lot of people are really upset about the the backroom politics of the dnc but on the republican side like trump's felt seriously just cut everybody's head off humiliated them eviscerated them it, and and they, you could see him break them. That was crazy to see, too, because these are people who want to be politicians. These are guys who are politicians. Jeb Bush, like you could see him break that man. And people hated it because they're like, he, he reminds me of my bully. Oh, God, every time I see Donald Trumpsfeld on TV, just I see the face of my bully. <laughs> You'd hear people say that. You'd hear like grown women say that. Grown people say that like your bully looked like Trumpsville. <laughs> but like you could see him, like people didn't like that. Like, but the people who didn't like that didn't matter. Like the people who didn't like the fact that Trumpsfeld was this bully, like they weren't the people that he was going for. And so that was the thing about it too, is like the people who were most bothered by him, you know, weren't, weren't the people he was trying to recruit for support, but it's like, he just cut his way to the top and, uh, with him though, it's like, it, yeah, it's just, it's like, it might as well have been anybody. 
I mean, it's it's one of those things where it almost seems like fated in some way, given that that's what happened. Like that is history now. That is what transpired. So it's like you can't go back and say, well, it, Jimmy Fallon could have done it too. That's going to be my new, that's going to be my take is I'm going to tell people, everybody thinks it was a big deal that Donald Trumpsfeld was able to become president. Well, here's what I think. It could have been anybody. If Jimmy Fallon's was was in there, he could have won too. It wasn't just Trumpsfeld. It could have been Jimmy Fallon. But, uh, and we, we do live in a world now where Jimmy Fallon could run. I, I actually think he would be trampled. I don't think Jimmy Fallon could handle running for president. I'll do a poll. <laughs> I'll find a way to do a first ever every night to school night, night school poll. Do you think Jimmy Fallon could handle being president? Not could he be elected. Do you think Jimmy Fallon could handle being president? What do you think? But no, I think we have evolved past the earlier structures, and I think technology has played a role in that. I think this sort of techno-mysticism that has developed, too, is a weird part of it. Because I think that our existing mysticism, however you want to define it, whatever that means to you or doesn't mean to you, I do think that our existing mysticism does manifest in whatever technology is available to us. Or we at least see that. Even if you want to say that, oh, science doesn't show you. Listen to this guy. He he thinks that mysticism manifests in computers. Yeah, I'd even say that com the, the, the fact that computers even exist at all is quite mystical. Yeah, but they built it out of these parts, which were made from this thing. I mean, the fact that we can even build this is pretty mystical to me. Yeah, but you... The, the, um, that's my favorite phantom. My favorite phantom to argue with is the the guy who challenges all mysticism and worships the microscope. You know, that's my favorite phantom to argue with because you don't even have to say anything. You know, you just you know you don't even have to say anything. <laughs> Those are my favorite phantoms to argue with. The ones where I don't even actually say anything. So only the phantom is talking. Um, <laughs> I have conversations with phantoms where I don't say anything and only the phantoms are arguing with me. But, you know, I do think that there is sort of a techno mysticism and even like, and I'm even willing to say that maybe it's all made up. I'll let this phantom, you know, have his, his, his piece of this. And I'll, I'll say that, yeah, maybe all of all mysticism is just, the primitive human mind trying to make sense of its surroundings and that all of that has been antiquated, outdated, and made archaic by the scientific method, dude. That's just replaced everything and it'll be there forever, guys. Oh, man, it's amazing. I'm just so glad. Just like I was saying, I'm glad to live in the time where women wear yoga pants all around, yogi pants. Just like I'm saying, I'm glad that, that women wear yogi pants everywhere. I'm so glad to live during the time period where we figured everything out and we know that the scientific, the scientific method is going to be around forever. I'm so glad to know that the scientific method is going to be in use forever from now on. That we'll never, ever have a different understanding of the world. I'm so glad that we could just, we could crumple mysticism up like a little ball and just toss it into the recycling. Or, hey, why not just throw it in the garbage? Because, you know, it's, it's, it's worse than recycling.
If we recycle it, it might come back. Because why does mysticism keep coming back, man? Why does it? I mean, that's that's what I'm getting at with this techno-mysticism. The fact that mysticism played a role in these Trumpsfeld supporters with their frog memes. Who would have ever thought that? Like, how many of those guys even considered themselves mystical before that? And they're openly mystical. That was the crazy thing that's come out of it is like, at least from what I've seen, you know, maybe an expert in that stuff, maybe some journalist can, can school me, but from what I can gather, like all those guys kind of took on a mystical approach and you know, even like explicitly saw it that way. And it's, it's one of those things that kind of was like tongue in cheek. It was kind of a joke, but I mean, that's sort of how you harness magic. By, you know, there's a phrase I heard on a, a podcast about, it's kind of about meditation and Buddhism and stuff, but somebody used the phrase, you know, hold on tight, but let go light. And you'll hear people give you the recommendation, and this is just life recommendation, but it applies to everything you do, which is that, like, get a firm grasp on something, but not, a, but not too tight of a grip. And with those guys, with these crazy 4chan, internet, Trumpsfeld supporters, that seems to have been their approach because here they were dedicated. They were completely focused on spreading these images and these ideas, but they were doing it in this tongue-in-cheek, almost ironic way. So it's like they were focused, like they, were, they had a firm grasp on what they were doing, but by making it all an absurd joke... It's like they weren't like white knuckling it. They weren't forcing it. Even though they were doing it constantly, it's like they weren't forcing it. It was this sort of like by by existing in this weird realm of between like irony and sincerity, it's almost like that is 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 itself like because I mean that's what I've even discovered. Like and and you'll hear a lot of people who are into, you know, magic with a K, magic with a CK. You'll you'll hear them talk about that exact principle, which is the idea of you know, not taking, I mean, Buddhism itself, like seeing life as an illusion, but meanwhile, dedicating yourself to living a, living a, a deliberate and focused life, which is kind of a, a weird dilemma. Because so many people hear that life is illusion, or they get a, a sense, like, even if they're not told that, like, you know, all these young people now who see themselves as nihilists, that's basically them saying the world is an illusion and they didn't get that idea from Buddhism. They didn't get that idea from any of the other number of places where you come across that idea. They just kind of, I think, got a sense for it. And that can make people want to die. That can, like when you, when you realize life is an illusion, that can make you want to fucking die. And it can make you make bad decisions. It can make you lose your focus and so I think that's why, you know, practices like Buddhism, at least certain teachings, emphasize that, you know, life is an illusion. But here are all the things you, you need to do, otherwise you, otherwise the illusion's even worse is basically what it is. Otherwise that, that illusion turns into something scary and dark, and you'll get sucked into it and tied to it, and you'll have to do that again and again through different lifetimes. So do these things so that you don't have to go through all that. Like this will make it a, you know, you can't change whether it's an illusion or not. And as a living being, you can't escape what you're going through. 
So here are some things you can do. And I mean, this is what all religions, this is what all mysticism does. I'm not, I'm not a Buddhist, so I'm not giving a, I'm not trying to convert anybody to Buddhism here. I'm just saying that it, it explains this process very well. Whether you believe in reincarnation or, or like freeing yourself from this cycle doesn't matter. Just the point is, is that seeing this as an illusion, but not using that as a reason to denounce life, renounce life, to, to stop trying, to stop trying to better yourself, to, to, because I mean, some people think like, oh, it's an illusion. So I'm going to behave as dissonantly as possible. Whereas some of these practices and teachings are that life is an illusion. This this life that we all live is, is an illusion. So here are some things you can do to harmonize with the illusion. And it being an illusion doesn't make it less valuable. It doesn't mean that it sucks. But it's easy to think that. It's easy to think, oh, because this is temporary, because it seems to just, my understanding of it can just change in a blink of an eye. And that's what we're going through. A lot of people are going through this feeling that life is an illusion, and the events of recent years have massively reinforced that. But yet people get attached to it. Like, because I mean, it's it's one thing, like, it, I can understand somebody who hated Donald Trumpsfeld. I can understand somebody who just hated the fact that he was president, hated what he stood for, hated what he did. I can completely understand that. What I don't understand is how that same person could also not see the absurdity. Like you could hate it and see it as representative of something bad and oppose Donald Trumpsfeld. But can you at least like recognize that it's surreal and absurd? And someone might say, yeah, they might give lip service to that. But I would say, no, but can you really feel it? <laughs> can you really feel like, can you just take a second? Like, and I think in order to really feel it, you have to detach yourself from those attached. You have to detach yourself to those feelings that, that you, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's what the, the Buddhists are getting at when they're talking about attachment. You know, it's, it's, they're saying like, you're getting attached to these illusions and you're getting completely hijacked by them. It's almost like when, if you've ever been on a boat where like a buoy gets stuck to the boat and you, you drag it around, it's, it's almost like you. And so it's like one thing to be like, oh, I don't like Donald Trump's fell and I'm going to do what I can to oppose him. But it's another thing to be just hooked. You know, like the way I put it back when he was still president was just that, you know, he's this planet to people and they're orbiting him. And Buddhism says that this thing might bother you deeply, but you don't have to orbit it. And whether or not you orbit it, that's not going to be the factor that helps or hurts. And in fact, it might just hurt you because now you're orbiting this thing you hate. You're attached to these things that you don't like. And when you go through life, you realize so many people are attached to the things they don't like more than the things they like. That's why I say, if you can, if you're in a good place and you just want to you're doing it for pure observation. Look at the comments section sometimes. Just look at them and think about what those people are actually saying. It's why I read some of those comments by the former Eric Clapton fans yesterday. Because you, you go through that and you look at it. And those, those are people who are deeply, deeply attached to their negative feelings. They're holding on to those. Like they couldn't just say, oh, Eric Clapton's an idiot. That's okay. 
And, and even if they never want to listen to him again or they want to get rid of their stuff, they couldn't just rest on that. They had to type a comment, a very specific comment, like about, I wish that I could, if I could get all my concert tickets that I spent money on over the years for Eric Clapton, I wish I could get those back and donate those to a, a campaign that would force people to get the vaccine. That's what somebody said, and I'm, I don't think they were a troll because there were a lot of comments along those lines by real people. Like that itself, that's like, you're, you're just like burying yourself you're attaching yourself and just and not just attaching yourself but just pulling yourself as close as you can possibly get you're trying to smother you're, you're trying to smother yourself in that as dark you know because if you do that once because the thing is none of this is a one-off like yeah we all get mad we all occasionally like if you use the internet maybe you even occasionally post something mean but usually when you see this like when you see somebody just really getting attached to something absurd and revolving around it. Like the idea of getting seriously upset about Eric Clapton being anti-vax. Like that person, that's not just one event in their life. They're not just doing that about that. Like the fact that they don't have the self-awareness about that is a pretty strong indicator that if you knew that person, they have a lot of Eric Clapton's. They have a lot of things in their life. And you can, you can even see where they were at probably, at, this is getting kind of silly, but you can see where that person, they were probably attached to this illusion of who they thought Eric Clapton was. Even You know what I mean? Like, they're not even mad at Eric Clapton. They're mad at who they thought he was. And Eric Clapton, it turns out he's changed. It turns out he hasn't. Like, since I talked about that, I looked it up and he's been making like extremely outrageous, like he said far worse things. Eric Clapton did a performance like when he was drunk in the 1970s where he was talking about how black people don't belong in Britain and he was telling people to vote for this conservative candidate. He was telling people, he was making all these kind of outrageous, he was saying that he doesn't support immigration, how England needs to stay white and needs to stay close to its roots. You know, he said that in the 70s when he was drunk, but it, it amazes me that anybody who would be upset about uh, his Vax opinion it amazes me that anybody, any any of the sort of people who would be upset about that stuff, it amazes me that they would still be a fan after some of the comments I found out he made in decades past. But it's like you can see where they were attached to an illusion of him. And the fact that Eric Clapton has been consistently conservative, the fact that he's even made extreme, I mean, like, you think about the stuff that people get in trouble for. Eric Clapton literally said he didn't want there to be a black colony a colony of black people in England. Like he literally said he wants England to be white only. And it's like, that's way that like, <laughs> that that's way, that's a way bigger statement than anything that people are getting in trouble for today. And so it amazes me that he's managed to get by this long, given that. So you can see the fact, the fact though, that he's been consistently conservative. He's even done a bunch of things over the years against big government like, it seems like Eric Clapton, if you're an actual fan, you would have known this about him. It turns out this, this isn't a one-off. That Eric Clapton has been this way for a very long time. So you can see that they had the complete wrong idea about Eric Clapton. And what's a wrong idea? It's an illusion. Like, when you think something is one way, but it's not, that is itself an illusion. So in this illusory world we live in, you know, so much of our perception is based on that. Like, this person loved Eric Clapton... But their idea of who he was, which is apparently important to his music to them, was a complete illusion. And then when that illusion was shattered, 
they responded with hatred and anger. You know, I hate this guy now. He didn't even do anything to them. They don't even know him. But it is that sort of logic where it's like if you find out somebody doesn't like you and you like them, your gut response, your ego response is to be like, well, I don't like them either. I recommend when you're in that situation, if you happen to find yourself in that crazy situation where you learn that somebody doesn't like you or you think they might not like you. But if your gut is to like them, if, if they are somebody who you like and it's even if it's disappointing to find out they don't approve of you or something, keep liking them. You don't have to try to be their friend. Don't bother them. But it's like, just keep in your head, like, be like, I'm not going to like do this weird internal retaliation where, oh, because that person doesn't like me, I'm not going to like them. Because what you end up doing in that situation too, is you end up assuming people don't like you. And then when you find out they do, you go, oh, I actually do like them. You know, I actually do. And that's silly on your part because it was all in your head. And, and you think about like, we're all going through this hall of mirrors where we're all doing that. Like we're all trying to gauge what other people think of us so that we can gauge what we think of them. And that happens interpersonally. It happens in social groups, in school, at work. Like, so we're, we're trying to figure out what they think of us so that we know what we think of them. Meanwhile, you're not actually thinking about what do you actually think about that person? And there's a chance they're doing that about you. So you're basically holding up these mirrors to each other, trying to get a glimpse of yourself in this person. Why not just think about who they are? Why not just look at them objectively and be like, you know what? No matter what this person thinks of me, I'm going to judge them according to what I think of them. And if they have a problem with me, that's their problem. And if they do something to interfere with me, well, that's when I poke your eyes out with a popsicle stick. Because that's where you can always draw a line. You always have that available. <laughs> you know, Not the popsicle stick. That's a metaphor. A metaphor for what? I don't know. But what I'm saying, though, is like you always have the fact that if somebody crosses a line and tries to screw with you, well, now you can get back at them. Now you can retaliate. Now you can at least put your hand up. You can do something. But just finding out like somebody doesn't like you or more likely assuming that somebody doesn't like you. Because I've known some really insecure people and they go through life extremely paranoid. And they're often people who are doing things that warrant paranoia. Like I talked about that succubus yesterday, the woman online. And I've known other people like her. I've actually known another succubus later, like in, in more recent years. I haven't known many, but I've known a couple and they're very similar actually. But I noticed with them, they, they tend to go around and they, they think, like I mentioned how like that woman, it was like, she's existing in this very small world. And when you live in a dishonest world, that's what happens. Like when you're living a dishonest life, it does feel like the world is closing in around you. As I, I lower the shades, if it's a form of closing in around me, right? But no, it, it really is a form of the world does feel like it's closing in around those people and they tend to see people very suspiciously and they're, they're constantly because they're constantly having to like figure out like 
who might know about this lie or who might be able to blow my cover. They live this very complicated strategic life. And what I learned, the scary part is, is what I've learned through knowing people like that, they're not actually as good at it as you think they are. Like the people who weave these tangled webs, if you get sucked in, you have a tendency to kind of believe them. And you're like, well, they know, even though this is crazy and dark, they kind of seem like they know what they're doing. And, you, and then there's, there's usually a moment, though, where you realize they don't. My friend just went through that. He was in a weird situation, and he just realized he had put a lot of... He had assumed that this person that he was seeing had it all figured out. And he, there was a moment where it became very clear that she didn't. And she was weaving a tangled web, too. And so it's like anytime you're in that situation... It's like you have this tendency to think, oh, well, like, even though this stuff is not, even though what's going on is not good, at least this person knows what they're doing. They're kind of an expert. Well, the fact that they're even, the fact that they are even the kind of person at all who weaves a tangled web means they're not going to be good at it. It means they've started out like with a, a major flaw in their system. It's eventually going to fall apart. I know I've been going on about that lately, but it kind of fascinates me. Because some liars are really good. Some dishonest people are really good at what they do. But in my experience, like it's, they're overconfident. And you realize they're just winging it. But they live in this very small world, which is what I'm getting at here, which is like, you know, where it's like, you're constantly having to think. Like when someone asks you a question, instead of just giving an answer, you have to think about who that person is and what they're saying. Or, sorry, you have to think about who that person is and, like, who they know. And you have to think about, like, how to phrase it. And it's like, if, if you're lying about something, that adds a whole other dimension, too, where it has to be a believable lie. So it's, it's a very complicated, stressful way to live. And people who live that way start to see everybody on their terms. They start to think that everybody lives the way they do. And those same people tend to see other people and think, oh, he doesn't like me or she doesn't like me. Meanwhile, they have no reason to believe that, but they, they're very cynical. People who, I'll just use the example, like weaving tangled webs, like the sort of person who does that one way or another. Doesn't have to be that succubus sort of situation. Men do it. Just people who weave those tangled webs, they become very paranoid of other people. And it's because they think everyone operates like they do. And they come from a place of dishonesty and manipulation. So they assume everybody's coming from that place. And unfortunately, they probably encountered that early on in their life. They probably learned that somewhere. Or the circumstances of life like forced them to be that way. And that's the really sad thing. Because there are, there are many people like that. But when you yourself are like that, you see almost everyone that way. And so it's better not to default to that. You don't want to go through life thinking, constantly thinking like, oh, does so-and-so like me? You know, it's like I was talking about how that interview with Howie Mandel. And... I, I like hearing people who have that level of fame and who also don't do anything that's interesting to me. Like, I'm not interested in the shows he hosts. You know, I'm really not interested in his comedy or anything. But, like, hearing somebody who's on that level, 
talk openly and honestly is always interesting to me because like he was saying like he's like he's still ultimately just looking for people to like him and love him by performing and doing what he does and i think that that the exact motivation for doing things varies it's not all just wanting love from people but it's wanting positive feedback it's you know it's wanting to you know find your place but with him in particular you know that's why it's such a big deal to us when someone we think someone doesn't like us because it's like that's what we ultimately want like howie mandel saying like oh i do all this stuff because i really just want people to love me and then it's like if you find out someone doesn't love you your response is to be like well i don't love them either and a paranoid person a dishonest person is going through life thinking i don't think that person loves me so i don't love them and when you go through life like having that sort of internal monologue you become a really unloving, ruthless person. Because you kind of default to the view that nobody likes you. And the reality is they probably don't know you if you're dishonest because you've created a, a whole alternative, alternative world. Um, but yeah, like, like I mean, I think, and it, and it shows you how, it shows you how easily we're won over. And I've been in this exact situation myself because, like, I mean, I go into a lot of situations being fairly stoic. You know, I, I don't go in like this, like, like just yelling and talking and raging. Like, this is this is not how I am socially normally. Um, you know, so I tend to go into situations stoic. And as a result, though, people, many people over the years are like, oh, yeah, like, I didn't think you liked me. And it's because I didn't volunteer it. Like, I didn't, I didn't volunteer it too readily. You know, I didn't go up to them and be like, um, hey, I'm your buddy. Hey, buddy, pleased to meet you. You know, I didn't go up to them like that. So it's like if you're kind of, if you're a little bit standoffish or stoic when you first meet people, like, they will think that guy doesn't like me. And because this is so easy to do, they might end up thinking like, and you know what? Because it, it doesn't seem like he likes me, so I don't like him either. And I've done that myself many, many times over the years. Gone into a situation, not gotten like whatever feedback I was looking for, and just defaulted to the view that like, oh. And so it's, it's actually effective to remind people every once in a while that you like them. Like if you haven't seen somebody or talked to them in a while, like it's good to kind of find a way without being weird to tell them you like them. Or give them some sort of positive reinforcement because people are just desperate for it. It's crazy. Like I mentioned on here how, you know, sometimes the most humiliating thing in the world is like when somebody, you think somebody's waving at you and you raise your hand to wave back and you realize they were waving at a person behind you. I mean, that's in movies. That's been in movies for a long time. Like everybody knows that's a very, that's one of those feelings that everybody can understand. And it's weird that it's so devastating because it's not an ins It's not like they were insulting you. It's, it, it's, it's the same thing as not, it's, it's like when you know somebody's name, but they either don't know yours or pretend not to know. There's something that's extra humiliating about that. And so like all of this, these feelings are directly related that I'm talking about where it's like, when you don't know if somebody likes you, you don't feel like you can necessarily fully like them until you know for sure that they do like you. 
even if they lie. That's the funny thing is like, even if they lie about it, like they might not like you, but if they say, if they, if they do something to be friendly or indicate they like you, that's good enough for you. (laughs) They seem like they like me. So I like them, but it's like that same feeling, that same, that same need, like where it's like, I need them to like me for me to like them. Oh, if they wave at me, but it turns out they're waving at the person behind me, not me. It's almost like you've been wounded. It's a, and you might even be mad at the person for no reason. Like you might even think, like, what a jerk. What a bit. What a bit. What a bitch. You, know, you might even like think that, even though you have no reason to. Your gut response would be like they meant to hurt me, even though they were just trying to wave at somebody. It turns out, but then there's like a uh, problem there where it's like. I wasn't the person, even though I know that person, I wasn't the person they were waving to. The person they chose to wave to was behind me, you know? So it's like, it's a real ego. It's a, that'll bruise your ego real good. And it's funny that something so simple, just this simple accident. And, And yeah, like somebody not knowing your name or forgetting your name or getting your name wrong. We take that very personally and even we'll, we'll even begin disliking someone because it signals to us that like they don't care enough about me. They don't like me enough to even get my name or remember my name. And if I in turn know their name, there's an imbalance there. It's like me waving back when they, it turns out they weren't waving at me. It's like finding out they don't like me, but I liked them. I liked them enough to remember their name. Why couldn't they like me enough to remember my name? When you think about a lot of the stuff that eats up someone's brain during the day, this is it. Like, do you think your average coworker is sitting around thinking about like, do you think they're solving advanced mathematic equations in their head? Do you think they're sitting there at their desk, like thinking about what we really should have done in Afghanistan and like where we should have placed our troops and you know, do you think they're actually sitting around thinking about that? Like, no, they're probably thinking about like, I noticed that she hasn't liked any of my posts for a couple of weeks. I hope she's not going to break up with me. Or they're thinking like, yeah, I went to the party, but, uh, you know, Sammy was there and, you know, I met him before, but he, somebody reintroduced me to him and he, he didn't remember that we had met before. And I said we'd met before and he said, oh, I didn't remember. And I spent the whole rest of the night thinking about it. Oh, I, I, I texted her 10 minutes ago and she responded right away. And then I responded again and she hasn't answered in the last eight minutes. I wonder if something's up. You know, when you actually think about what's eating up a lot of people's brain time, brain time, it's stuff like that. And we, our brains just do that. Like the stuff that we worry about, like, and you never realize how ridiculous, ridiculous it can be. Like if you've gone through a breakup, you do that to the extreme. It's so bad. It's so bad. Like, especially when you're younger, the way that you can spin your wheels, like when you're young and heartbroken and two, like even you get older and like, I had a friend go through something and, and he was, he was just spinning his wheels. And like, I had been exactly there. I had been in his exact position before. But when you're not in that position, you look at it and you're like, man, this is, this is almost, uh, it's, 
it sucks, but it's almost funny because you think like, it's amazing what we focus on. It's amazing like what what equations we try to solve in our brains when we're upset or when we're not focused. And those questions are just that 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 guy at the office. So I just he's sitting there thinking about those things. And life would be so much more simple if you just said, "Oh yeah, I like that person." Whether they remember my name, whether they like me back, I like them. Because that plays into what I said before about too, where people, their hearts get broken if a musician they like or an actor they like, they meet them and the person's a dick. Or if they even hear a story that the person's a dick. It's like, oh no, I loved, I loved Tom Cruise my whole life. I've loved Tom Cruise my whole life. I just heard that he's a, he's a he's a Scientologist and he's a jerk. Oh my god! You know, it's like I can't like him anymore. I met Tom Cruise and he he wouldn't sign an autograph. I fucking hate him. Oh my god, Eric Clapton! He don't he doesn't think you should wear a mask. Yeah, what a fucking asshole! Oh my god. You know, that's what people are doing. That's how they sound. That's how their souls sound in that moment. Actually, there's, I shouldn't say their souls sound that way. Whatever corruption that takes place in between the soul and the human brain, <laughs> that's what sounds that way. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it all, it all goes hand in hand where it's just like, Somebody does something that we don't like. So we revert to this. We, we, we attach ourselves to the negativity. We grab hold of the negativity and we have to say something. We have to make it more permanent. Because like somebody leaving a comment about Eric Clapton. I'm sorry to focus on that so much. It's just one example of everything. But somebody leaves a comment like... Unless they delete it or somebody else deletes it, that's a permanent comment. They have permanently attached themselves to hating on Eric Clapton. And somebody else might very well reply to them. So they're going to get engaged. They're going to get invested in an argument about Eric Clapton. They're not just going to express their opinion about how much Eric Clapton sucks because he's not pro-vaccine. They're actually going to get into an argument with people about it. They're going to get fully invested and attached to that. And so that's why there's a, a virtue to being able to say, I don't like this. And I, I do have, I'm a human being. I'm not a floating orb. You know, in, in the mountains of India, I'm not a floating orb in the Him, Him, Himalayas. So I'm going to have opinions. I'm going to have reactions. I'm going to be a jerk. I'm going to say things I don't need to say. But if you take that from the point of view that like sometimes I need to say something or, or even just not even say something. Sometimes I need to think something. Sometimes I need to look at something and say, fuck that. Fuck that. You know, sometimes you need to do that. I won't do that voice again. Um, but sometimes you need to do that. Just say, fuck that and move on. But you can see where people attach themselves to that, where they say, no, 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 no. I'm going to get involved. Like my, my sentiments about Eric Clapton, I'm going to get involved in this issue. I'm going to fight people about this. 
I'm going to carry that feeling of negativity with me. What would otherwise be just a fleeting opinion, which could just be, oh, Eric Clapton, that, I disagree with him, and that sucks that he, he feels that way about the almighty vac, almighty vax. But, you know, okay, I'm going to move along. I have plenty of other things to focus on. I'm a well-balanced person. I'm not attached to the, the negative hell that is part of this illusion if we let it get out of hand. But other people say, I'm going to dig in on this. And you know what that person, that's also the same person who's desperate for happiness. That's also the same person who's like, man, I just need a break. When's happiness just going to fall down within reach and I can just grab it? And when they do have happiness, they grab hold of it. And they attach themselves to that. And they, it's like, God forbid you fall down. And, and so it's like those people go up and down. They just, their moods just go up and down. And all it takes is news about Eric Clapton. But it's not, like I said, it's not just that. That person who's making a big deal about Eric Clapton, they have a lot of Eric Claptons in their life. They have a lot of people in their life, probably. Maybe their wife, maybe their son, maybe their, you know, their father, you know, they've, their coworkers, like they probably have a life filled with Eric Clapton's. Or maybe this guy, maybe this is just the one thing this guy cares about. Maybe that's a real person too. The guy who is really well balanced and he has his shit together. But this Eric Clapton news was just the, <laughs> it was just the one thing that got to him. And he's just, he's already moved on. He's like, oh, fuck Eric Clapton. Fuck Eric Clapton. You know, it's like, and then he just went back to normal. He's like, oh, hi, wife. Hi, son. You know what? I think I'll actually listen to some Eric Clapton tonight, you know, because his views on the coronavirus don't actually impact the music at all. And I'm glad that he at least feels like he can speak his mind because chances are Eric Clapton isn't hurting anybody. You know, there's that person too, but they're allowed to think like, fuck Eric Clapton for thinking that and then move on with their life. But those people are pretty rare in my experience. Like the sort of person who is going to get completely hijacked by a celebrity's opinion one way or another, because you can see where that attachment goes both ways, where like if a celebrity comes out and says something that somebody agrees with, People are like, oh, I, 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 I told you he was cool. There's a reason I love him. Like if Eric Clapton came out and he said, you know what? Masks rule. And in fact, I'm going to write a song about how cool lockdown is. I mean, imagine that. <laughs> he wrote an anti-lockdown song. But imagine if Eric Clapton wrote a song about a pro-lockdown song. It would be so crazy. <laughs> But let's say he did that. There would be somebody who came out and they were like, dude, that rules. I'm so glad Eric Clapton's on the right side of history and he knows he knows about how important the vaccine is. And, uh, you know, and he, I'm, I'm so glad he thinks we should all stay in our houses away from the coronavirus. You know, it's like there'd be people who would feel that way. But like and then that person would be disappointed when he in turn does something they disagree with. But it's like, you can see where they get attached to the positive and the negative equally. And their view of the thing depends on those emotions. They can't just be like, Eric Clapton is an entity in this bizarre phenomenon called life who happened to write interesting music that not everybody likes, but most people have some respect for. And he has his own opinions but as an artist, a certain amount of eccentricity is to be expected. 
And sometimes some of the nuance of who somebody really is, is lost when they become a public personality. And we tend to treat them like something they are not. Ever think about that one? But I mean, it goes both ways too, because I, I think about when that singer Ariel Pink got... I think he went to the January 6th thing and he's like he's one of those guys who is like a weird kind of artsy indie rock guy who got into Trumpsfeld. And uh, I, I was kind of, you know, just loosely familiar with him. I had a friend who listened to him back in probably around 2005, 2006. And I remember hearing a song or two and being like, it's not my thing, but it's interesting. Like he is, you know, he stood out. That's what I'd say. Like back then when my friend was listening to him, I remember thinking like, yeah, this isn't my thing at all, but he stood out as something. So it's not surprising that he ended up coming back on the radar in this increasingly surreal political environment, this weird game of mix and match where it's like, who can we, who can we put into different weird politically charged situations who we'd never expect related to a president who's equally weird that we'd never expect? And it's like, oh, Ariel Pink, Sure. The council agrees. Ariel Pink. Let's let's put him let's let's put him in the mega crowd. But you know, it obviously most of his fans are going to be liberal, and just I, I guess you know he he got a lot of flack from it. But what was so funny and sad and stupid, funny and sad and stupid, um, was like like all these like QAnon types. Actually, speaking of QAnon, yesterday, like all of these like QAnon moms. Or they'd never even heard of this guy. How would they? Like he's some, you know, kind of weird indie sort of guy. And they're like, whoever this Ariel Pink guy is, uh, let's all let's all give him our money. And so there were these campaigns online where these like random Republican moms were like buying his Bandcamp music. <laughs> They were doing like an Ariel Pink fundraiser, and that's one of those moments where I'm just like, this rules. This is beautiful. Because they don't care. They're just thinking like, oh, this guy, he's, he's a musician who got ostracized for being on our side. Let's rally the troops and, and give him money. You know, you can see how tribal it is where it's like the idea that of these people even listening to Ariel Pink is hilarious. Like the idea of somebody in middle America listening to Ariel Pink <laughs> because he, he voted for Donald Trump. It's just like beautiful that's art this is why art probably has gotten lost like this is why we no longer have this is why traditional art has stagnated this is why we're evolving into something else because i think what i'm describing here is the actual art of it all i think the actual art like that moment that's enlightenment like i've talked on here before about how enlightenment isn't the state of being of an of an individual it's the exchange you know i learned that from a story but still how like the enlightenment occurs in the exchange it occurs in like if you give someone a gift it's the exchange itself that is the enlightenment not you not them and uh <laughs> the same thing plays out here where the enlightenment here is these republican qAnon moms posting on social media for everybody to donate, to buy Ariel Pink albums. Like that is enlightenment. That the exchange of that, like one of those women, one of those people in the South, 
I'll just go with the full on stereotype. You know, I try to avoid going on with like the middle America or Southern stereotype, but that's what I was seeing. Like that's actually, these are the people who were supporting Ariel Pink and saying to buy his albums. They were like moms in the South. It was like, like a mom in, in Oklahoma, like her purchasing an Ariel Pink album. That's enlightenment. Not because it's some holy cause, just because that like trans that like breaks our reality. That transcends our, our normal reality. That's beyond ego. That's beyond taste. It's just like purely trying to fill a hole. It's like purely trying to like fill a need. I'm really I really mean this too. <laughs> and I this is all new to me. Like I haven't thought about any of this before. I've thought about Ariel Pink and like I, I talked to Miles when it happened because he knew about Ariel Pink and I talked to him about it and we were both laughing about these moms like rallying the troops to purchase Ariel Pink albums to support him. I've talked about that, but like I've never actually thought about how like that itself, like there's no ego in that. There's no taste. There's no opinion. It's politically charged. Like it's corrupted by politics, but weird politics. Like the sort of politics that allow Ariel Pink and a Republican mom in Oklahoma to be part of the same tribe under Donald Trump. Like that isn't just normal politics. So even though politics are, are corrupt and ugly, that is art. That isn't even politics anymore. That's human art. This land is mine, God gave this land to me, this brave, this golden land to me, and when the morning sun reveals her hills and plains, I see a land where children can run free. 